And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And welcome to a new series, uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, well, really, it should just be Samuel. Uh, it's plain that 1 and 2 Samuel are just one book, uh, which was cut where it has been due to length of scrolls. Um, hopefully you'll see why I say that as we go through the series. And the book of Samuel, it could be summed up various ways. Uh, here's one, and I like it because it's simple, but it does quite a lot for us. Uh, the rise and fall of two kings, Saul and David. Uh, the people's king, Saul, and God's king, David. But notice how much of a run-up we get even before we meet Saul. Nine chapters before Saul is even mentioned. Why is that? Well, Samuel, he must come first. The prophet-priest who promises to drag Israel out of their sinful state. And we're going to think a lot more about him in the next few weeks and why we need that first. But it's just worth saying, uh, this book is not a leadership manual. Lots of people think that. Although it clearly does have lots of things to say about what a good leader might look like. Um, no, this is more about God and what he is doing in the world. Well, because um, Israel are in a really dire state at the moment. Uh, we've just left the book of Judges uh, before any kings have even ever been appointed in Israel. Um, Israel are in the land, that's great, but they're in a real mess, real mess. Judges finishes like this. I don't know if you know it, it's quite a famous conclusion to the book. It goes like this In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was carnage. Everybody living for themselves might remind you of our culture today in some ways. And there's further clues in Samuel chapter 1, this introductory chapter to the book. Chapter 1, verse 13. 
Did you notice that? Eli, the priest in the temple, well, he thought Hannah was drunk rather than praying. Now, just how bad was Israel's lack of prayer that Eli, the good priest, didn't even recognize prayer when it happened in his own temple? Clearly, Israel had stopped praying completely. Spiritual poverty. And when you realize that Israel, they're in the promised land, they are a great nation, and they have a holy God, and they know him, just as God had promised them, it's astounding that Israel are in so far off spiritually, don't you think? They're sinful, they're arrogant, and they are rebels still. And so our story, well, it starts in that context. And it starts with Samuel's mummy, uh, Hannah. Hannah's amazing, isn't she? And the prayer she prays in chapter 2 is really the book's heartbeat. Uh, introduces the book and is complemented by David's song, which comes at the very end of 2 Samuel 22. Uh, that's why you have that diagram on your hands out. Those two speeches which frame the book about these two kings. They top and tail it really beautifully. And these two carefully crafted speeches, they have all the same ideas. And they act like bite-sized revision guides. And they're there to help us not miss what is really going on in all the stories. So we should come back to these songs and these prayers over and over again. Because if we understand this prayer, we'll get the whole book, actually. It's like all the lessons the book wants to teach us roll up into one really easy, bite-sized um, chunk for us to be learning. But before we dive into the prayer, we need to briefly feel the introductory chapter, which is the whole of chapter one, uh, the setting of the scene, if you like. And what a story it is. Such great drama. Hannah, Samuel's mummy, well, she shares her husband, Elkanah, with Penina who we'll call Penny for now. Quick caveat, just worth saying this very clearly. The Bible uh, never endorses polygamy. Uh, in fact, in all the Bible's narrative, it is always a recipe for disaster. It certainly doesn't seem to be a, a source of much joy here, and it is the very undoing of King David's son, Solomon. So polygamy aside, uh, just imagine being in Hannah's situation, sharing a husband, and Penny can't stop having babies. Hannah is just empty, barren. And so her direct rival, chapter 1, verse 6, constantly provokes her grievously to irritate her. That Penny was an overly fertile, mouthy, thorn in Hannah's flesh. And we don't have all the mental health implications of this spelled out, but you can just imagine. And we do know that at the end of verse 7, Hannah wept and would not eat. Imagine her pain. Year on year, the goading, the grief, the anguish, the nights of crying into already sodden pillows unimaginable pain. And notice 1 verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. How would she be feeling about God in this moment? 
He has caused her to be barren like this. Uh, Worth pausing to just acknowledge. uh, The stats say that inevitably there will be many here in this room who struggle to have children. Uh, Did you know around one in six couples struggle to conceive? If that is you, can I encourage you to talk with somebody here about that? It will be unimaginably painful. Uh, But God never promises anybody children, or a spouse for that matter. But it doesn't make that pain any easier. Share the pain with other Christians, and they'll help you walk through that season together. But we mustn't ever take this text, for example, as a proof that enough prayer will lead to a child. That's just not how it works. This is a particular baby for a particular time. I, went, I was thinking about this. I think in the 2,000 years of Old Testament history, I can count on my fingers how many women had experiences like we're reading today. And every one of them were particular babies for a particular purpose. So clearly, this is a relatively unique moment in history. And we need to be careful not to try and think this as normal for us today. Back to the story. Poor Hannah. Poor Hannah remained barren for so long. What did she need? What did she need? Change. A reversal of fortunes. And so it happened. Baby Samuel arrives. And I love how simple it is in the text. It just happens over the course of a single verse, isn't it? Just like so many crucial women as well, before and after Hannah in the Bible, barren for so long, then miraculous baby arrives. So the scene's been set. What had Hannah needed? What has she been given? And how does Hannah respond? Well, I wonder what you would expect her to say, because I bet that it's not chapter 2. Let's consider Hannah's responsive prayer in chapter 2, where we'll spend nearly all of our time uh, going forward. This is our first point. Hannah's need and her prayer are all about God's great reversal. God's great reversal. Let me ask you, why does Hannah say this prayer? Why does she say this prayer? Does it simply answer chapter 1? At first glance, it does fit really well with chapter 1. God has reversed the fortunes of Hannah. Uh, Look at the second half of verse 5. The barren has born seven, but the one who has many children is forlorn. You see the reversal? I was barren, but now I have seven. Penny has had all the kids before, but now she is forlorn. Reversal, back to front and front to back. It's both and. And just consider who Hannah is talking to. Did you notice this? Chapter 2, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Who is Hannah talking to there? God or somebody else? Because Hannah can't be saying that to God here. It just doesn't make any sense. 
She's paused her obvious praising of God for this baby in verse 2 and turned to address somebody else. Is not, this not at least clearly including Penny? Chapter 1, verse 6, the arrogance and the provoking. Hannah is getting her own back. And look at chapter 2, verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. And those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. I don't know how much chocolate was involved. But that does seem to fit perfectly with chapter 1, verse 7. Hannah's lack of eating, her response to being barren. So why does Hannah say this prayer? Well, it does respond to the reversal of chapter 1. It definitely does do that. And yet, Hannah's prayer is so much more than just an answer to chapter 1. There's so much which should make us realise more is going on. And as we look at all these pictures of reversals, I want you to ask yourselves, how much are we talking about Hannah and Penny from chapter 1? And how much are we talking about so much more than that? Chapter 2, verse 4. Feel these reversal pictures. The bows of the mighty are broken, a feeble bind on strength. And we know Hannah and Penny exchanged heated words, but I'm not sure bows and arrows were ever drawn on each other. So imagine the fight. A bow and arrow exchange. The mighty, they are all like Robin Hood, with their bows drawn taut, ready to release the arrows to kill. And the feeble, well, they can barely pull the string back. Who's going to win? Well, God's going to reverse what you would expect. And now just imagine hearing that. If you were an Israelite looking these scary Philistines, armies in the whites of the eyes, We'll meet them in a few weeks' time. Or indeed, think of the most famous fight scene in this book, David and Goliath. How comforting to hear that. Uh, Verse 5, another picture. The full hire themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. The full all become like homeless beggars, and the hungry will perpetually feel as full as you did on Christmas Day. Total reversal of the expected. You see, human power and human weakness look totally opposite if you believe in God as Hannah believed in God. And we'll see these reversals played out for us again and again and again as we go through the book. Maybe you felt that already if you read the whole book all the way through. Second half of verse 5. Uh, The barren has borne seven. She who has many children is forlorn. Here's just another clue, actually, that there is more going on than meets the eye, even in this verse, which seems to be so blatantly about Hannah. Because I'm not sure that Hannah ever had seven kids. Uh, Certainly not if you look at chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, Check my maths if you like. Uh, There it says, chapter 2, verse 21, says Hannah has three sons, two daughters, And we had Samuel as well. If you're still figuring out the math, by the way, that makes six. Um, Why this is, why why she calls it seven, I'll let you speculate for yourselves. But there is much more than just Hannah's immediate story behind this prayer. 
Verse 6. And here's the big one, isn't it? The Lord kills and brings to life, bringing down to Sheol and raising up. Heaven and hell, life and death. And notice again how God does both. God does both. Here we see the real nature of what it means for God to be God. And it doesn't get any bigger than this, life and death. Sometimes you hear it said that uh, the Old Testament had no concept of resurrection from the dead. Nonsense. Just read verse 6. Hannah's grasp of reality was extraordinary. Verse 7, less dramatic, but just as radically reversed. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. And notice, with all of these opposites, that God is always the sole instigator. And that he does both the raising up and the bringing low. God controls it all, both directions of the travel. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. To Hannah, nothing was necessarily as it seemed. The greatest could be the lowest and the lowest could be the greatest. You could even say that Hannah saw that the first will be last and the last will be first. This is what God has been like from the beginning of the Bible right to the end of it. He is the God of reversals. Look at verse 9. Faithful guarded, wicked cut off. We need to remember, however counterintuitive it seems, humanity's might and strength will never, ever win. It won't win. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. If you're against God, well, then you will guaranteed be broken. Let's pause for a moment to apply this picture of God's reversals before we move on. I want to ask, do we believe in God as Hannah did? Do we see the world the way Hannah did? I think most people think they own their own life, that they have the power to hold on to their own life and to avoid death. Most in the world certainly live like that. And that is obviously wrong. But here amongst us, here at the 10 a.m., I think we tend to be quite comfortable thinking about God as giving life. It's nice. It's positive. And it's true, wonderfully true, isn't it? God loves to give life. And we should rejoice in that fact. God loves to raise the humble. But God is also the kind of God who brings people down as well. And that is harder to believe and harder to remember. Really, though, it has to be like that for him to be God. This is a God who is really in control. This is a God who is almost scary, isn't it? God will bring down the proud and raise up the hungry. Is that your God? 
Do you have a God that does both? Is your God, look down with me at verse 3, the second half of verse 3, is your God the God who is the God of knowledge? A God who knows everything, all, where there's no place of hiding. See, pride and arrogance, at the start of verse 3, they're at the root of all sin. That was the case in Israel's day, and it has been in every generation since. Uh, we need to realise, before a God who knows, arrogance is actually just hiding. Hiding. Pretending as if God doesn't see. But wait a minute. Who do you think God is? As if he doesn't know. There are many in Samuel who think God doesn't know. Is this your God? Is your God, end of verse 8, the God who owns the pillars of the earth? He made it and rules it. It is all his. Is that your God? That's a God who is genuinely in charge, even if he has given us a very temporary, very limited feel of the reins for now. Is this your God? Is your God, second half of verse 10, the God who judges the ends of the earth? I wonder when did you first learn that life was unfair? My children are just starting to get their heads around that right now. Life just isn't fair, is it? But that isn't quite right, is it? Life is unfair, only for now. Only for now. Because God is judge. And God, the judge, will come to rectify. It will be fair one day. One day. Truly believe that, just like Hannah did. And you know what? It will make you the most patient, most forgiving person on the planet. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good? To have a God like that? To be able to wait on a God like that? Is this your God? Because this is our God. This is our God. He's a God of great reversals. He's the only God who knows, who owns it all, who judges it all. Praise the Lord. And Hannah's prayer, like we've said from the front, well, it's, it's programmatic for this whole book and is actually one of the most important prayers in the whole Bible. It's one of the reasons I'd love us as the 10 a.m. to really know it, to memorise it all together. Hannah's reversal in chapter 1 it's just a little picture of how God is going to be doing something far, far bigger. But it all starts here in chapter 2. Hannah's reversal, it's, God's, it got, it's got God's fingerprints all over it. God's fingerprints. And the pattern of this prayer will be all over this book, all over the whole Bible, and I do suspect all over your lives as well. But crucial question, how? How will God reverse this nation? How will God reverse everything? 
life and death, poor and feeble, sorry, rich and poor, feeble and mighty. How will all these incredible pictures come to light? Well, our second point, more briefly, through God's king. God's great reversal will come through God's king. Did you notice that Hannah speaks about horns, both at the start and the end of the prayer? Now, Matt Horn, don't get too excited. This isn't your French horn, which you play music through, but more like horns on top of a raging bull. Power. This horn is a weapon, not a tube of brass that you blow raspberries down. So second line of chapter 2, verse 1. My horn. Do you see that? And look at the last line of the prayer, verse 10. And exalt the horn. Horns at the top and tail of the prayer. But did you notice that these horns are slightly different horns? At least they belong to different people. Verse 1 is Hannah's horn. Hannah now with baby Samuel, she's strutting around in front of Penny like a raging bull. And verse 10, that's the anointed King Messiah's horn. Now that should make us fall off our seats. Because there's no king yet. There is no king around. Mind you, it's probably just that Hannah knew her Bible really well because it's not for want of clues running up to this point in the Bible that there will be a king. I've put all these references down on your handout so you can check them later. You don't have to scribble them down now. But listen to this. Chapter, uh, Genesis 17, the third repeat of the Abrahamic covenant. Did you know this? Twice, God speaks of kings coming from Sarah. And it's there again in Genesis 35, 11. It's there again in the Exodus, Exodus 19, 6, and in Numbers 24, 7. And there's a big section in Deuteronomy 7, all about what to do with Israel's king. And don't forget the last line of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The clues were all there. A king was needed. But still... Saul's the first king in Israel, and he doesn't come for another eight chapters yet. Hannah's talking about the king to come. She's saying this when there isn't even a throne room yet in Israel. It's an astonishing thing that she prays this prayer. See, sometimes you hear Samuel being taught like this, like it's teaching Israel that they needed a king. They did need a king, but they've already known that. Judges at least should signal to us that so much of the story has been working up to us knowing that. What Samuel teaches us is that they need God's king, not just any king. Samuel's going to show us the people's king, then God's king. Yet, of course, we know it still won't be the final king because God's king still, too, will fall. So it's a bit like the difference between Hannah and Penny, chalk and cheese. Uh, One might look the part, the other will be the part, at least for a time. So what were Israel supposed to do? As they hear this prayer, 
as they listened to what Hannah has to say, as they pondered these rise and the fall of both Saul and David, what should they do? They should wait. Wait. God would provide them a king at the right time. He is the God of great reversals. Life more often than not will feel like the rubbish side of the reversal. But be confident, Israel, that God will raise a king, a king who will judge the ends of the earth. Just wait and see. Now, before we wrap up, we need to remember another woman, not a barren woman, but another woman who had a miraculous pregnancy and a woman who knew God like Hannah knew God. She was a favoured one, just like Hannah's name means favoured one. Of course, I'm talking about Mary, Jesus' mother. See, hundreds of years after Hannah, Mary prayed a prayer which riffed upon Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. Mary's song also speaks of God's great reversals, which comes through God's only king. Luke 1, often known as the Magnificat, well, it's the most famous song of all time, and Mary blatantly plagiarizes all of Hannah's ideas. It's blatant copyright infringement territory. Because Hannah giving birth to Samuel is the start of something really extraordinary. There's a place uh, in the Cotswolds called Kemble. I don't know if you know it, but you'd never guess it. But there are a few puddles in Kemble, which when you follow them along for miles and miles and miles, you get to the Thames River, the vast river which many of us cross every day. It's basin-sized, did you know this? The Thames River is nearly 5,000 square miles. It starts with a puddle. Samuel is like Kemble. Barely even a stream of water yet. Uh, Often in the summer, the, the puddle dries up totally. You'd never imagine it. But Samuel, he leads to Jesus. Uh, You'd never guess the puddle in Kemble would lead to the Thames and then into the ocean. But that is God's story. This is God's plan. Hannah had eyes to see it. And do we have eyes like Hannah's to see the world as she did? Hannah's horn was exalted, so too God's Messiah was exalted. And so he will come again in power to judge. Will we wait for him like Israel had to wait for Jesus? Because although we have seen him come, and for that we can clearly rejoice, we too are still waiting for him to come again. Waiting isn't something we like to do or that we find easy, but it is the mark of a Christian today to look forward to that day when God's reversal will be plain for all to see. So wait on him. God will, in his timing, when it is right, reverse everything 
Give us what we need. Just wait and see. Let's pray as we close. Oh, gracious, loving, heavenly Father, there is none holy like you, O Lord. You are the God of knowledge. You are the God who kills and brings life. You are the the Lord of the whole earth. You are the one who judges. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Thank you that you are a God of great reversals. Thank you for this picture of Hannah and this trickle of a promise that Samuel is through her reversal. Help us wait like Israel had to wait. Help us wait clear that you truly are the God who will reverse everything. Help us wait on the King. Help us wait on the Messiah. Help us wait on the Anointed. And we pray all these things for your glory. Amen.